So I had this image arise during Oriyoki breakfast this morning of all of us as these rough-hewn little oddly-shaped pegs, hexagons, stars, squares, and rectangles all eating breakfast together. We've wandered into this monastic container and right away we're given instructions on how to be. Shape your body like this, breathe like this, listen like this, eat in this way, follow this schedule. Each of us, an odd and uniquely shaped little peg, not so sure if we'll fit into this Zen training container this shape that has been opened up for us. We do our best while we're here, even when the opening seems rather small and round and we feel rather pointy and cumbersome at times. What else can we do? I think the most important thing on the first day of retreat is to relax. It's not uncommon to feel a lot of doubt or insecurity arise about our pointiness, about our oddly shaped minds and hearts. From my seat, you're all doing quite wonderful. And I hope you can take that in. You're doing just fine. I sometimes take on an attitude of endurance when I enter retreat or not just a retreat, but any activity, like going to the Oriyoki table, or sitting down for zazen, or entering the kitchen for a wash-up. I can act as though the day or the activity I'm about to engage in is a burden to be endured. And this, I notice, is a deeply rooted tendency This is where mindfulness of attitude becomes extremely helpful. When I believe the day to be a burden, I'm actually creating the burden I believed was there through my thoughts. The burden of my beliefs about how the world is. When my mind becomes obsessively stuck in the realm of all I believe to be wrong, stuck in the loop of all that is that shouldn't be. Again, it becomes the case that I'm actually creating the burden I believe to be presented to me from some external source. All that is and shouldn't be. This is the title for the memoir my inner critic is writing. It's thousands of pages and still going. 
And she writes it like this. Oh, oh, I can't believe you're doing that. <laughs> oh no, don't look, she's doing it again. <laughs> you shouldn't be like this. Oh no, pages and pages and pages. All that is and shouldn't be. She's quite dissatisfied with that title. <laughs> but convinced that I can't come up with something better. What we can celebrate here together, here in the silence of the meditation hall, is that awareness brings choice. Sometimes it's just that simple. Hogan Roshi is happy to remind me of the destructive power of wandering thoughts. And the inner critic is a wanderer. She has a large stick over her shoulder and a big bundle at the end of that stick. This bundle contains all the memories, the things that she's collected of all the things I've done wrong and all the possibilities of the things that could go wrong. So we might think something like, hey, maybe I'll take up piano. The inner critic solemnly stops, sighs, unties her bundle and lays it out like, like she's about to do a tarot reading, like an astrologer. Laying it all out, she points at the rusty relics of fading memories. Remember that piano recital when you were seven? I do remember that piano recital. <laughs> I thought of it before sitting up here. I totally forgot all of the notes for Silent Night. <laughs> and I was sure that I would come up here and do exactly the same thing. We'll see, maybe it'll happen. <laughs> remember when that band in high school rejected you? Remember you can't read music? It could go on and on, just this simple thought, hey, maybe I'll take up the piano. She gathers up all of these make-believe memories, really, and then pronounces the fate. It will be worse if you try it again. <laughs> In our lunch chant, the Fukanza Zengi, Dogen implores us actually to ignore this voice. He says, intelligence or lack of it is not an issue. Make no distinction between the dull and the sharp-witted. If you concentrate your effort single-mindedly, that in itself is wholeheartedly engaging the way. Practice realization is naturally undefiled. Going forward is, after all, an everyday affair. In other words, whatever your inner critic has to say isn't relevant in this realm. This isn't a piano recital. We are working in realms much, much larger than the conceptual minds can understand. 
retreat, we are looking into the great mystery, looking into the matter of life and death, being born and dying. In this infinite universe, on this mysterious path that we've all come together to walk, What can the inner critic really know about whether the events in our life are obstructions or teachers? Whether we are doing well or we aren't. What can the inner critic really know about whether events in our life are obstructions or teachers? Whether we are doing well or we aren't. Let it be a mystery. Last night, as the Han sounded for our first period of meditation in the Zendo, I was rushing to get my robes on and feeling a little just rushed and stressed. And then I had the thought, oh yeah, I can enjoy this. I do have that choice. And it shifted. Dogen Zenji has written thousands of texts Dharma instructions, admonitions, warnings, treaties of inconceivable depth and wisdom. His words flow forward like the power of the great river, the river below us, the Columbia, always pushing against the weak spots, tumbling into low areas, coursing forward, unpredictable and dangerous to our egos. A million words to express the wordless. This also includes detailed instructions on how to use the bathroom, which we may scoff at now, but I imagine in a large monastery with latrines instead of plumbing, it was very important that everyone play by the rules. When he wrote our lunch chant, universally recommended instructions for Zazen, he could have said a million things. Given the weight of his books on our library shelves, he did not seem to be a man for loss of words. And I'm sure with such a title, including universal instructions, he chose his words very carefully. In those few pages, he says, the zazen I speak of is not meditation practice. It is simply the Dharma gate of joyful ease. It is simply the Dharma gate of joyful ease. We, <clears throat> all of us here, this community of roughly hewn pegs, agreeing together to take up this particular manifestation of practice, can, within this container, hold open the door of joyful ease. And it will look different for every peg here.
One thing I notice even in sitting up here is that unfiltered panache is vulnerable. Our burdens can also be our coats of armor. And awareness brings choice. Sometimes that's all it takes. Like last night when I remember joy, I could just shift. That too is invited. Awareness brings choice. Perhaps remembering joy is like holding up a little white flag in a sea of tumultuous thinking. Sometimes we are so tempest-tossed by wandering thoughts that all we can do is clasp our little flag. Do the best we can and keep going. Life can be, life is chaotic, painful, unruly, totally unpredictable. In a session a few months ago, Jogan Sensei was fond of reminding us that this life this life we are living has no guardrails. Anything can happen at any moment. There are times when we are hit by a tidal wave of unexpected strength and velocity, life circumstances flying completely and utterly out of our control. And this is just a reminder, we never really had control in the first place. And this is a normal part of the human experience. Sickness and death is unavoidable, and old age is for the lucky. And when we have the opportunity to practice within that tidal wave, to wave the flag and turn towards presence, what a precious opportunity. It might feel like we've only got a pinky finger hold on anything resembling presence. And we can sustain that hold when we don't let our inner critics draw conclusions about what is happening or how it should be happening. And at other times, there is a distinctive pivot. Oh yes, joy within all of this, joyful ease. Just by remembering, it becomes available and we pivot. Pivoting from this day is a burden to, oh, I see now, this day can also be a gift. This day, whatever is happening, this activity, this wash-up, this orioki, can also be a gift.
And it's not definitive. We keep practicing. Practice never ends, and that's meant to be encouraging. Practice changes, evolves, continues to flow, and has no end. We keep remembering, we keep remembering to turn towards joy, to turn towards life. And practice gets more interesting. And although we can have enormous shifts towards a more quiet, open mind stream, it doesn't mean we get rid of the other things. Byron Katie, who has been an important teacher through her books and videos at the monastery, says this. Thoughts just appear. They come out of nothing and go back to nothing, like clouds moving across the empty sky. They come to pass, not to stay. There is no harm in them until we attach to them as if they were true. She continues, I don't let go of my thoughts. I meet them with understanding. Then they let go of me. With practice, we come into relationship with this empty sky that she's talking about, with awareness, with the space around our thoughts. Clarity. This helps us see thoughts as they happen. We have stepped back a little bit. Dogen Zenji, put aside the intellectual practice of investigating words and chasing phrases and learn to take the backward step that turns the light and shines it inward. Stepping back so we can see a bigger picture I'm not just the things my inner critic thinks about me. Within this big picture, I might have the thought, I'm unhappy, I don't want to be here. And simultaneously, I'm excited about dinner. I'm proud of myself for taking up this challenge of doing two days of practice. I'm wondering what's happening this weekend. I'm listening to the sounds in the room. We're never stuck. And when we do feel stuck, a good question to ask is, what else is true? I don't want to be doing this. What else is true? It's not a negation, what else is true. It's an expansion. It's making the mind stream more inclusive. It's helping us notice more about our experience. And the thoughts about my experience are, again, just thoughts. Appearing cloud-like, moving across a wide open pasture with a big open sky overhead and disappearing. Every thought we have ever had and will ever have is like this. The inner critic is also just a thought. 
and it's not personal. Byron Katie again, thoughts just appear. They come out of nothing and go back into nothing. I have another example of this from this book we've been reading from frequently at the monastery, The World Could Be Otherwise by Norman Fisher. In Fukan's Zengi, Dogen gives a wonderful teaching about this. Think not thinking, he writes. How do you think not thinking beyond thinking? This is the art of Zazen. This seems at first like a paradoxical koan-like saying designed merely to baffle. It isn't. It's Dogen's expression for unrestricted bodhisattva meditation, imagination expanding meditation. In meditation, Dogen says, don't try to eliminate thinking or anything else. Think not thinking. Thinking is the usual sort of thinking driven by self-smallness. Not thinking is the opposite, not ceasing thinking, but allowing thinking that isn't limited by our smallness, that is free and open. So in meditation, we should practice thinking, but not in the usual sort. How do we do this? By not pursuing thinking. That is, when a thought arises, whatever thought it is, even an angry, resentful, or violent thought, we let it come. No matter how afflicted it is, it comes originally not from our smallness, but from the endless past of the storehouse consciousness. It comes from the vastness of the time-space simultaneity Dogen speaks about earlier in his text. Every thought, every perception, every emotion is precious and immense, no matter what it is. But there is an and yet. And yet, when we take that wondrously arising emotion or thought, grab hold of it and make it our own, the pain starts. To practice think not thinking, we have to learn how to let any and every thought occur and celebrate it simply by leaving it alone, not grabbing it, not identifying with it, not twirling it about, letting it come, appreciating it, letting it go as everything will go if left alone. When we learn how to practice like this, which is easiest to do on the cushion, we'll give free rein to our imaginations. This think not thinking beyond thinking is exactly what we mean by imaginative thinking. Things come and go unexpectedly. We receive <clears throat> what we need. We receive what we need. And when we take this step back, like Norman Fisher was talking about, it's not just our thought stream that comes into better view. We are invited to witness and be experienced by the panoply of our life. If thought is just one of the sen senses, with practice we invite the thought sense to take its proper place. It's possible to live a life where thoughts don't bully us. 
We can give the field of sound, sight, touch, and smell their equal due. The sense gates are equally our life, probably more so than the thought sense. We have thoughts about our experiences. We have thoughts about the smells and sounds and sights. We actually titrate these senses through the thought gate. With, with practice, we're asking to simply be with the raw sensory data of our life without interpretation and just see what happens and see what's there. And when we stop identifying so thoroughly with the thought stream, when we've opened up the sense gates, then the really interesting questions are allowed more space. If I'm not my thoughts, if I'm not what my inner critic tells me that I am, what am I? If I'm not my thoughts, what is all of this? What's happening here? If I'm not my thoughts, where do I stop and where does the world begin? If I'm not my thoughts, what is it that I'm calling I? It's alive, this world that we are, always changing. When preferences are cast aside, when judgment is quieted, when we can listen to the field of sound, when we let the body become the field of sound, when we're present for the field of sensation we call a body, as it expands into the other sense gates, it's all alive. And changing and calling to us, calling to us to be present, to awaken with the world that we are. And this life is just flowing along. It isn't hindered by what we think of it. It will continue with or without our acknowledgement. The objective of this retreat is not to become the right-shaped peg. It's not to become good Zen students. It's not to shave off our edges so we can fit better in the container. And we do, with practice, become more malleable. Like water, we flow into this monastic container. And then when we leave, we flow into whatever other container our life asks of us. 
We're all so many things, parents, children, husbands, wives, business owners, teachers. We just flow into those roles and then we come out of them and flow into whatever else is asked of us. We flow with equal ease, perhaps even with joyful ease, into the situations of our life as we practice. We get softer, more flexible. When we step back from the thought stream, when we stop identifying so thoroughly with thoughts and believe them to be who we are, I'll close with the last lines of the Fukanza Zengi. Please, honored followers of Zen, long accustomed to groping for the elephant, do not doubt the true dragon. Devote your energies to the way that points directly to the real thing. Reveal the, revere the one who has gone beyond learning and is free from effort. Accord with the enlightenment of all the Buddhas, Succeed to the samadhi of all the ancestors. Continue to live in such a way and you will be such a person. The treasure store will open of itself and you may enjoy it freely.